Welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Coop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, you know, one of my favorite verses, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And it's not just the truth that sets you free, it's the truth you know that sets you free. And how do you know if you know the truth? Well, you know if you know the truth, if you do the truth. That's when you really know you know the truth. If I said to you this morning, I know how to play piano, you could say, well, show me, do it. Then I'll know if you know it. And it's the same thing with truth. If we say, well, the truth sets us free, it's the truth we know, and really it's the truth we do that sets us free. Because you can have the truth and not do it, and there's no freedom with it. Yesterday at our 8 o'clock prayer meeting, every Saturday at 8, we get together for prayer, corporate prayer. That means everybody who wants to from the church family comes together and we pray. What we do to start with is we take 15 minutes and we just have someone teach a little bit about a principle regarding prayer. And this past couple of weeks, we've repeatedly had to just encourage people again and again on how to pray effectively, on how to use God's word in their prayer. One of the things that came up quite often, last night again as we prayed for someone after the service and then during the week was people were struggling with nightmares, challenges in their sleep or other challenges where they just felt like they were fighting off darkness. And I need prayer for this. I need victory over this. I'm tired of not having a good night's sleep. I'm tired of feeling like in my workplace there's a war going on. I need victory in this situation. Jesus came and won victory. The Bible says really clear that he defeated the powers of darkness. He won victory, and he handed that victory over to us. But that victory that he won for us is ours if we are in the arena of faith, so to speak. If we step out of that arena, that sphere, we, we won't have victory. But he equipped us with everything we need to be more than a conqueror in life. Before I get into the message this morning, I just want to talk a little bit about this principle because I felt like it wasn't just for those that were at prayer yesterday. It wasn't just for those that we talked and counseled to or last night at the, as we prayed after the service. I just feel like there's a number of us that need maybe a reminder on this or maybe it's new for us. This is such a huge principle in living in victory over darkness. If I am a boxer, I'm not, but if I was a boxer, and if I want to win in the boxing arena, I need a boxing coach to come along and teach me, here's a way to hold your hands, here's a way to stand, here's how to move, here's how to win a boxing match. It's a, it's a physical match, and there's certain skills that I can learn to win in a boxing match. Make sense? Or if I want to win a chess game, I could sit down and I could say, okay, here's a chess game, here's the move I need to make, and that's more of a mental realm. The boxing's the physical realm. The chess would be the mental realm, but then there's also a spiritual realm. As much as you'd fight in a boxing ring or you'd have this match in a chess game, there's also a spiritual match. Now, these things will overlap some, but there's this distinct spiritual battle that you're in. You don't have any choice in the matter. You, you'll, you'll have these battles in your life. But God has equipped us so that we can win in that spiritual realm. However, if we don't know it or if we're not equipped, we won't win there. We're going to continue to have the nightmare. We're going to continue to be defeated. But he doesn't want us to be defeated. He said, I don't want you to be defeated. I've come to give you life and life abundantly. And yet God said, my people are perishing because they lack knowledge. They don't know what to do in that arena. 
So before I go on the message this morning, I just want to take a few moments to talk about the importance of using God's word in your life to win the spiritual battle that you sometimes will encounter against darkness. We don't wrestle, Paul said, flesh and blood. It's not your mother-in-law that's the problem, okay? It's not your boss that's the problem. It's not your teenage daughter that's the problem or your neighbor who plays his music too loud and you just feel like, oh, I want to go over there and punch them out or I want to outsmart them. Before you do that, take this battle into your prayer closet. Win it there. If you're going to get angry, get angry in your prayer closet at an enemy who would like to destroy your life. Well, what's my tool? The tool is God's word. There's something about it. James said the effective prayer of the righteous avails much. So that tells us an ineffective prayer won't avail a lot. It won't accomplish a lot. But an effective prayer can change things in your home, in your workplace, in your, in your community. What's needed? It's God's word. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. This word is God. It's not a newspaper. It's not an encyclopedia. It's not the Time magazine. Literally, John said, this word is God. He goes on to say, and the word is light. It's life unto man. He said, by him all things are made. By this word, it's life. It's light. It's energy. And he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it. When we take this word and we speak it into the situation that we're fighting, let's say it is a nightmare or bad dreams. I can't sleep at night. Insomnia, I'm wrestling with this. When we take this word and we speak it into that spiritual arena, it's like shafts of light that pierce energy that pushes back, if I could put it that way, the dark energy. His energy, his light, his word, his life pierces into that realm and it changes the spiritual condition. In verse 14 of John 1, John goes on to say, and the word became flesh. That's Jesus. He dwelt with us. We beheld his glory. Glorious from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. He's amazing. He was with us. Then in John chapter 6, Jesus said, listen carefully, he said, my words, this is going to surprise you, my words are spirit and life. When you speak his word, you speak spirit, you speak life, you speak something that goes into the spiritual realm. If you want to battle a spirit of darkness coming at you, you can't outbox it. You can't outthink it. But the minute you take God's word and you speak it out of your mouth, it pierces the darkness and it pushes darkness back. My words are spirit. They're life. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness can't comprehend it. The darkness can't overpower it. So, maybe you've been struggling with sleep. You're having bad dreams, nightmares, or your children are having nightmares. What would I do? Then you take your Bible, the Word of God, and you read it. Best to memorize it, because you can't always carry it in your hip pocket and bring it out. Of course, now we can have it on our iPhone, which is a little bit more handy. But the idea is to hide it in your heart so that it's just there when you need it. 
And this is going to sound kind of strange, but trust me, it works. When those challenges come, when that darkness floods in, or maybe fear is just coming at you, or, or you're battling a situation, you just feel this intense pressure and tension at work, go into your prayer closet or your, the place that you pray. And again, this is going to sound a little strange, but here's what you do. Read the Bible to the devil. But why? Because Jesus did. When Jesus was attacked by darkness, by the enemy, he said, it is written. He read him the Bible. Then he came at him again. He says, it is written. Now, if our Lord did that, then we would have to do that because we're not above our master. If Jesus, the teacher, did it, then we, the student, need to do it. Well, I'm going to copy my teacher. Folks, God does not want us beat up by the powers of darkness. He paid an incredible price for our freedom. The Bible says he spoiled principalities and powers and made an open display of them as being defeated. Now we have to stand up though and do something with it because you can have a wonderful Bible leather bound in the whole bit and it can sit in your shelf and it'll do nothing. You can go to a hotel and there's a Gideon's Bible in your desk drawer, but you could be tormented in that hotel room because this is like this potential energy. Do you remember your physics grade 10? You put a little ball on top of a, of a ramp, and it was potential energy up there. But the minute the ball began to move down, there, it turned into kinetic energy. And when you speak God's word, it goes from potential energy to kinetic energy. You see, yeah, thank God for it. Aren't you glad for that? I agree, Maya. It's exciting to see this word comes alive. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, the word of God, this, is quick, it's living, it's alive. It's different than any other book. It's living, it's alive, and it's powerful. It's operative. It's effective. That word effective is the same word that James used when he says it's effective prayer. There's, there's an energizing part of this word. It's quick and powerful. Then it says it's sharper sharper than any two-edged sword. That means there's other two-edged swords. Proverbs says the mouth of an immoral woman is a two-edged sword, but this is sharper, sharper. And if you, if you look that up in a simple strong concordance, that sharper means that within one stroke you can cut through it. Ever had a dull knife? And you cut and you cut and you cut and you're trying to get through something? That's not the word of God. The word of God is sharper. One stroke, one swipe, and you're through sharp two-edged sword, two-edged, interesting word, comes from a Greek word, die, first part means twice or again, the second part of the word is, means edge or, listen carefully, mouth, twice mouth, twice mouthed, God spoke it from his mouth once, we have it here, Twice, you speak it, God speaks it, but when you take it, and when you speak it, my, 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 something's happening in the realm around you. There is a very real spiritual realm. I think we'd all agree, there's a real spiritual realm, there are angels, there's demons, Jesus, God, Devil, there's a dark light. 
How do we win in that? How do we win in a boxing match? How do we win a chess game? How do I win in the spiritual realm? This word is alive. But again, if it's just sitting here and we don't speak it, nothing's going to change. But when we speak God's word, when we take it and we read God's word, when we pray God's word, when we use his word, the atmosphere changes around us. Quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. God said it. I say it. I'm agreeing with God. Powers of darkness hear that and they go, oh, he hates this message. Man, I wish that pastor would shut up. I don't want them to know this. I don't want them to be reminded about this. This is dynamite. His word is dunamis, literally dynamite, exploding, pushing back darkness in your home, your workplace, your job, your business. Man, I, I lost my job. I don't have money to pay the bills. What do I do? Take his word and speak it. No, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. No, it is written of God before me who can be against me. No, it is written the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside green still waters. He leads me to these green pastures. He watches over my life. We, we take Psalm 91 and you begin to read it and speak it and say it. No, this is what he says. And that light's going as you speak it into that darkness. And then that verse, just to finish it off, sharper than any two-edged sword, interesting word, rightly dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerner the thoughts and intents of the heart, rightly dividing, a very interesting word, used only two times in the entire New Testament. I didn't come up with this, a guy a lot smarter than I did, a guy by the name of Dr. Harry Rimmer, and he studied the Greek of the day. Now, the Greek word, therefore, dividing asunder or rightly dividing is the same word that the writer of the Hebrew uses in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4, where he says the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts dividing asunder. Sounds like two totally different things. What is the writer talking about? If you were there in that day, you would have got it if you lived then. Because the word is marismas, and you would go, oh, I know what he's talking about. I get it. But we don't get it because it, for us, we're, we're translating. We're taking something spoken of that day and understanding it years later. But if I would say HST, how many of you know what I'm talking about? You're talking about that tax. Man, the government's dealing with it. We're all dealing with it. We paid every time. But Marismas was a tax. It was a tax that everybody had to pay. We all have to pay HST, right? Everybody's got to pay. Well, back then they had a tax that everybody had to pay. But some people just flat couldn't pay it. So you know what they did? They said, well, you got a lot of money. Pastor Dan's got a lot of money. So we're going to take Dan and we get Dan to give us some of his money. We're going to take it over here to this guy who doesn't got a lot. And away in the back corner, Dan needs some more. We're going to go visit this person. They live over here, Skid Row, back corner. We're going to distribute some of your money to them so they have enough. I'm just using Dan as an example, but it fits, maybe. <laughs> or they, what they would take from the wealthy, and they would distribute it to those who had nothing, so they had it. So when the writer of Hebrews says, gifts of the Holy Spirit, God took the infinite wealth of the Holy Spirit, and he gave gifts to us. Without Christ, we're poor, right? We have nothing without him. Without him, I have nothing. 
But he takes this infinite wealth of the Holy Spirit and he distributes to us. Now you come to this verse about the Word of God, it means to distribute. Now catch this, when we embrace God's heart into our spirit, when we say, oh God, I receive your Word, I believe it, the writer here says he rightly divides. He takes that word and he divides it right down to the joint and marrow, the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word literally percolates through every part of your life, right down to joint and marrow, right down to the little part of you, right to your thoughts and intents. The Holy Spirit begins to distribute the power, the energy, the life of God's word right to where you need it in every part. Another verse says, his word gives life to those who find them, health to all their whole flesh. This word distributes. This word gets distributed. Oh, let's be a lover of God's word. Let's pray his word. Let's speak God's word over our life. Before you reach for an aspirin, a Tylenol, before you reach for another solution, before you get mad and call your lawyer or sue somebody, before you take that action, take God's word and say, I'm going to pray. I'm going to speak his word. My first response is I'm going to go to the living word of God. Amen? Okay, that's got nothing to do with the message, but it is the message. We had to add it in here this morning. Thank God for his word. All right. So now we're going to switch gears and new file, okay? So it's on serving, path to promotion. Last Sunday, if you were here, we talked about the way you listen is the way we serve, right? So if you missed last week, you can get it off the internet or off podcasts. The way you listen is the way you serve. Today we're talking about if we do this, it leads to promotion. Not the way the world gives promotion, but God promotes in a different way. And it leads to greatness. He had no problem with the disciples when they came and said, you know, we want to be great, we want to be first. That was not his issue with them. It was the way they wanted to do it. And so today we're going to talk about this path to promotion and serving. Cheryl and I have mentioned one of the mentors that we had in the past. His name was Brother Littlefield. And this was when we were in Tennessee for your studying and learning there. And one particular day, he took us into his office. He closed the door. Uh, he asked us to close the door. And when we did, we looked up, and there were three letters that were framed on the wall. He says, children, today I want you to take a look at that. We looked at them, and there were three letters from the past three presidents at that time. Each president of the United States had written him a letter and congratulated him and their church on the work they did for the poor and the disadvantaged. He said, I have a message for you. If you will serve those around you, if you help others and lift them up, God will honor that. Later on, we were, on a Saturday, we were getting candy ready to give to children. Every Saturday, he'd have this exercise where it was a big galvanized wash tub, and he would fill it full of candy. And then he'd have us sit around, we'd put this candy into little bags, and then we'd go into the Smoky Mountains, where there's just year after year of welfare community, generation after generation, and we would go visit these children, give them candy, encourage them, pray for them, and try to help them and the families. And so we'd do this on a regular basis. And one particular Saturday, we thought, where does he get the candy? Man, he's got a trunk full of candy every Saturday. 
So we asked him, where'd you get the candy, Brother Littlefield? He says, oh, there's an interesting story. The president of the Brock Candy Company passed away. He wasn't a very godly man, and nobody wanted to do his funeral. So they came to me, and they said, do you want to do this man's funeral? Would you serve the family? And he said, yeah, I'll gladly serve the family. They never came to his church. I don't think they came afterwards. There was really nothing in it for him, but he served them, and he did this funeral and helped the family through this crisis. Sometime later, the son of the president came to him and said, Brother Littlefield, it meant so much the way you served us. If you ever need candy, you can come every week and fill your trunk with candy if you want. He says, since that time, every week I go to Chattanooga and I fill my trunk with candy. And I bring it here and I give it away to children and love them with God's love through it. What led to that kind of promotion? It was the way he served. That still works today. God in this last, really, encounter, last teaching that the disciples get through Jesus is teaching them how to serve. So go with me to John chapter 13, and we want to go from verses 1 to 17. And uh, would you say with me this morning, thank you, Lord, for the book of John. Verse 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were not in the world, he loved them to the end. Not a great verse. He loves us to the end. God loves you. When others stop loving you, when you've messed up, they said, oh, I'm not loving you anymore. God still loves you. He loves you to the end. Now, he's going back to the Father. He's leaving this sphere. It says, I'm departing. When we die, we just go from one sphere to another sphere. We go from one world to another world. He, he was going back. He knew that he was loved to the Father. He was going back to be with the Father. I, I think there was this restlessness in our Lord that time. There was a struggle because he knew that he would face a terrible death and he knew what he was going to go through. But yet I think there was this anticipation, I'm going to be with the Father. Verse 2, and after supper ended the devil, having already been put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. There's a lot of stuff in those verses. Number one, it's the first point of your notes, to serve one must be secure in their identity. Look at Jesus. He says, I know where I've come from, and I know where I'm going. I know whose I am, and I'm okay serving. People that have trouble serving are typically insecure. If you're a manager of a company, I'm not going to serve them. I'm not going to do that. That's their job. If, I, if after all, if I do that, it might I might lose my position, so I'm not going to step down to that. But if you're really secure in who you are, if you're a manager, if you're an oversight seer, a supervisor, you have no problem doing it because you're secure in your position. Jesus could get up and serve his disciples, wash their feet. Why? I'm very secure in who I am. God's given all things unto me. I've come from the Father. I'm going to the Father. I'm secure in who I am. The disciples weren't secure in who they were. They were there at that, around that uh, eating area, and they should have washed one another's feet, and they should have certainly washed Jesus' feet. For whatever reason, they missed inviting a servant to do this task. It was a job of John and Peter set up this occasion. Jesus had sent them ahead to do this, but for whatever reason, there was no servant there. So here they are sitting around the table, supper's over, and nobody's washed each other's feet yet. It's not like our day-to-day -day where we have socks and shoes on. It's sandals back then, no sidewalk, no pavement. 
a lot of dirt, a lot of animal droppings, and a lot of dirty feet. They're not sitting around a table like you and I do. They're kind of lying down on a, on a couch about 18 inches off the ground with the feet 18 inches off the ground. So there's a lot of smell in that room as well. You get the picture. But yet nobody's getting up to wash the other people's feet. Perhaps they're thinking, well, if I get up to wash their feet, I might always get stuck with a job. And I don't want to get stuck with a job, so I'm not going to do it. And somebody else is thinking, if I wash their feet... It's going to establish the pecking order, and I'm always going to be bottom on the totem pole, so there's no way I'm washing anybody's feet, even though we should probably wash Jesus' feet. I'm not even going to dare do that because I'll get stuck with it, or we're going to establish this pecking order, and uh, I'm not going there. And so whatever reason, that may be some of them, but they don't wash each other's feet. Not secure. You know, in Luke's account, we don't have it in John's account, but in Luke's account, Jesus here is going to teach them again how to serve. Remember last week when James and John had their mom come to Jesus and say, please give our, my sons the vice president office, and Jesus taught them how to serve? He's taught this lesson a number of times already. But after this, this is going to surprise you. You can read it in Luke's account of this, but after this, they actually have a fight of who's the greatest. They've done this a number of times. Luke chapter 9, they fought who's going to be the greatest. These guys are still jostling for position, and Jesus is announcing, I'm going to die, but they're still struggling who's going to be the best, who's number one. It sounds like a lot hasn't changed over the years. People are still people. And Jesus is trying to teach his best boys, his disciples, you guys, if you want to be great, the key to greatness is to serve. So not another lecture, really. He says, let me show you by example. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5 to 7, we have some instructions on humility because serving is really humility. If we don't understand what humility is, we'll mess up, we won't do it. But if we understand God's perspective on humility, it'll help us serve. 1 Peter 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Younger generation submitting to an older generation, but let's not stop there. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. It's for everybody. So you can't be older and say, well, I don't have to do that because I'm the older generation. Peter would correct you on that. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you or promote you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Proverbs 18, 12, haughtiness comes before disaster, but humility before honor. Honor is respect, valued. If you honor somebody, you respect them, you value them. The teenager says, I just don't get any respect around this house. The employee says, I don't get, I'm not respected at my job. I, I should be getting a raise. I'm not respected on the team. I need some respect around here. How do you get respect? We get respect with humility. Humility serves. When we serve, then comes respect, then comes honor. What is humility? Scripturally, on the next page, humility is not thinking less of yourself. That'd be a false humility. It's thinking of others instead, acting in their best interest instead of your own. Humility is not denying the gifting you have, but admitting the gifting you have is from God. Somebody come up to John Maxwell. He's an amazing teacher, and they went to John Maxwell and said, that was a brilliant message you gave. John Maxwell's response was, it's a gift. He didn't say, oh, no, it's nothing. You know, no, I'm really not much of a speaker. No, he says, it's a gift. It's a brilliant response to say, no, this is what I do, but I recognize 
this is something God's given me to help other people. Christ-like humility can be defined as power under control. Like a horse, a strong horse with a bridle on, but it's power under control. Power sometimes is given a bad rap because power can corrupt, but not always. You know Lord Acton's quote, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Perhaps that's what we've seen in Egypt this last couple of weeks, a corruption of power. But God gave you power. Jesus gave you power. He says, I give you power to tread over serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy. So he gives us power. Power isn't wrong. It's what you do with power that could be wrong. It's okay to have power. But to use it wrongly, to not serve with your power, that would be wrong. You say, well, if I serve, I'm, I, then somebody might have power over me, and I might not be in control. Exactly. Power and serving does make you vulnerable. Loving people makes you vulnerable. So to serve, you run the risk of somebody taking advantage of you. You run the risk of being understood. But it's a good risk to run. It's a good risk to take. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said in the book called The Four Loves. He talked about the danger, the vulnerability that happens when we serve and love. He says, to love at all is to be vulnerable Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Put that casket safe, dark, motionless, airless. Put it in there. It will change. It will not be broken, but it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Now, this next line is a little heavy, I warn you. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. So to serve, to love, is a risk. But it's a good risk to take. It leads to promotion, ultimately. To serve, one must make sacrifices to elevate others. There's a great story about a man named Ben Carson. Still works today, has an amazing career, leaving a legacy well before he's passed away. Ben's story is interesting. Grade five, 10 years old, bottom of the class, called dummy, and he reacts with a temper, and he gets upset at people, and he's, he's in a bad place. Single mom, husband had left her a number of years ago, married when she was 13, dropped out of school at grade three, she's got these boys she's trying to raise, and they're failing in school. Ben's one of them. So she says to her boys, no more TV. What you're going to do instead is you're going to read two books a week, and I want a book report on each of them. She can't read very well, but she gives them this assignment. So they begin to do it. All of a sudden, Ben is not failing in school. One of the teachers had asked him to identify some rocks in the class, and he'd read about rocks in one of the books his mom gave him, and he identified all the rocks, and he had an aha moment, I am not a dummy. I'm actually smart. And he became secure in who he was. Fast forward, by the age of 32, he's the head of neurosurgeon in John Hopkins University. Brilliant. He's one of the smartest neurosurgeons in the world. He gets an assignment to go to a very hurting nation to do an incredibly difficult operation and he uses his talents not just to help the people he's operating, but really to elevate a hospital in an entire nation. 
It's a great example of servanthood where we use our talents and our abilities to serve others and elevate them, not ourselves. Here's a little clip, and he talks about it. In I was asked to head up a team in an attempt to separate type 2 vertical craniopicus twins. These twins joined to the top of the head, facing in opposite directions. I knew that was going to be a great medical challenge, 13 attempts to do that previously, none of which had been successful. But there was another challenge. You see, the operation was going to be done at the Medical University of South Africa at Medunsa, the only major black teaching hospital in South Africa. Always the stepchild throughout apartheid and in the post-apartheid period. This was going to be their chance to stand shoulder to shoulder with Johannesburg and Cape Town and all the other great universities. I wasn't ready for all that social pressure. I said, Lord, you've got to help me. More capable people than me have tried and failed. And as I was studying their anatomy, I noticed that the common drainage system that they shared was narrower centrally than it was peripherally. The traditional neurosurgical literature says that you should give one twin the drainage system and divide them over the course of three or four operations so that they could develop collateral circulation. Well, I felt strongly that if we concentrated on the area where it was narrowing down, that we could do it all in one operation. When I explained that to the team, they said, you're the boss, we'll do whatever you want to do. And uh, I remember going into that operating room two days before New Year's of 98, big sign that said, God bless Joseph and Luca Banda. They were having song service and prayer service. And um, I said, can we bring in a stereo system, bring, play inspirational music? 19 hours into the operation, we were only three-quarters of the way finished. The part that remained was so complex, blood vessels engorged and tangled, adhesed, that looked impossible. We stopped the operation. I suggested we cover it over with skin. We could come back in a few months. They would have developed collaterals, and we could cut through. And they said, great idea. I know that would work at Johns Hopkins. But we can't keep partially separated twins alive. They'll die. I really felt the weight of the world on my shoulders. I went back in there without all of my fancy equipment. I had my scalpel, my loops, a pair of my lips. Started cutting between those vessels that were so thin you could see the anesthetic bubbles coursing through them, just daring you to make a mistake. Make a long story short, when I made the final cut that separated those twins, over the stereo system came the hallelujah chorus. Everybody had goosebumps. And when we finished that operation after 28 hours, one of the twins popped his eyes open and reached up for the intertracheal tube. By the time we got to the ICU, the other one did the same thing. Within two days, they were extubated. Within three days, they were eating. Within two weeks, they were crawling. And in a few weeks, they'll be graduating from the sixth grade. But, but that, that, that was not the success. The success you had to be there to witness was the reaction of the people. This was done in their hospital, in their country. They were over the moon. They were literally dancing in the streets. And that's what I mean by success. Using the talent that God has given you to elevate other people. Great quote right there to finish off. What is servanthood? What does it really mean? Using the talents, the abilities, the resources God's given you to elevate somebody else. We don't downplay what we have. We just take and use it to help somebody else, serve somebody else. What a great story. Jesus washed dirty feet at this story. But he goes on to talk about the sacrifice he was going to make where he'd give his life for many. Not only did he wash the dirty feet, today he's washing dirty hearts. Hearts that have been stained in a world that's polluted. And today he's here to wash our hearts. 
If you've never received the forgiveness, the cleansing, today our Lord's here to serve you. Would you bow your heads with me? Maybe you're here today and you've never received that surgery that only Jesus can do. Much more difficult than what we heard Ben Carson talk about. This is true heart surgery where he washes away the dirt, the debris, the sin, the ugliness of our life and gives us a new heart. If you've never asked Christ to come into your life to do this, let this be the morning you would do that. I want to lead us all in a simple prayer and invite you to pray along with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this Sunday, I receive what you did for me. I accept when Christ died and rose again. He gave his life for me. And today I receive that life. I ask for your forgiveness. I ask for your healing. And I ask you to help me serve the way you served. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.